to 1 John. 1 John. So as you're turning there, uh, let me just uh, begin by saying this. I'm, I need to be a curmudgeon for a second. If you don't know what a curmudgeon is, it's a very angry, uh, sort of bitter, typically older person in our congregation. I fit the bill. Okay, so I'm going to be a congr- I'm going to be a curmudgeon for a second. You probably don't remember this, but there was a time when there was no cell phones. In fact, you probably don't remember this. If you went to the movie theaters with your friends and you didn't have a car yet, you couldn't drive, you know what you had to do? You had to go outside the movie theater, you know, make sure you had some uh, coinage with you. You had to put the coin into this uh, metal kind of box and it had like a little uh, receiver thing and it looked kind of weird. And you put in some money and you dialed and, and then you picked it up and you go like this and you had to call your mom and say, Mom, movie's over, can you pick me up? Now we have a cell phone. Now we just call. Maybe we don't even call mom. Maybe we call an Uber. We don't have to wait for mom anymore. We have somebody to pick us up. Let me tell you another thing. Uh, I don't even carry cash with me anymore. You used to have to carry cash. Now we get the credit cards. And you know what? Now some people don't even carry credit cards. It's their phone. There's an Apple Pay for that. Very quick transaction. I don't have to pay cash. There's no accounting involved. We're not very good counters in our society anymore. You know what else? Have you ever been to Disneyland? Yeah? Did you know this? There was a time. Raise your hand if you've been to Disneyland. Okay. Raise your hand if you went to Disneyland before there was the thing called, I think it's called the Fast Pass. Raise your hand if you were, okay, yeah. There was a time in Disneyland where you couldn't get a little card that told you when to show up for the rides, but you just had to wait in the line, no matter how long it was, like, two, sometimes three hours. I'm old enough that I sat in those lines. Now you just get your little fast pass that tells you when to show up. Lines are much shorter. There was a time uh, before Kindle when you could just download a book. That was when you actually had to go onto Amazon and order a book. Could you believe that? You had to go online and wait for it to come in the mail. There was a time. There was a time where you had to plan your schedule out. Uh, if you wanted to watch a television show, you had to plan out your day so that you made sure you're at home when the TV show came on and you had to wait during the commercials. That was the day before Netflix. Can you believe this? Here's what all these things have in common. There was a time when you actually had to wait on things. There was a time when you couldn't get everything instant access. And what's been happening is the marketplace is becoming dominated uh, by ingenuity that helps things happen faster. Things are instant. I don't have to wait anymore. Entrepreneurs, corporations, uh, the leading thinkers, they focus on how do we get things quickly to the consumer. We don't want them to have to wait. And here's the deal. I'm not knocking entrepreneurs. I'm not knocking corporations. They're just smart. And the reason they're smart is they figured out What's really important to human beings. And what's really important to human beings is that we, we don't want to wait. We hate to wait. We hate to wait. We want it all, and we want it right now. I don't want to wait. I want it right now. And they're just tapping into that very common human uh, uh, piece of humanity. Now, here's what we lack. We lack, and it seems to me every generation, and this is the curmudgeon coming out, it seems to me every, uh, every generation is getting a little less patient, a little more impatient, every generation. We hate to wait. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is just a new phenomenon. Maybe it's an American thing. Maybe it's just the way we do it in this country. The question is, is this something new or is it something old? Now, have you ever heard the uh, old saying, the old proverb? <laughs> this is going to, you guys might have never heard this. <laughs> it's very common though. Uh, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You've heard this? A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. This is a classic proverb of our day. Uh, let me give you a modern equivalent if you've never heard that. One MP3 in the cloud is worth an album on the iPod. Similar concept. 
And it's telling us this. Having it now, the bird in the hand, is better than the potential for two birds in the bush that I might catch. That's the idea. Now, here's what's so interesting about this saying. You may have never heard it, so it might not. It might be new to you. But this has been around for a long time. In fact, the first iteration of this is found in the 6th century B.C. That's 2,600 years ago. And it went something like this. A sparrow in thy hand is better than a thousand sparrows flying. Does that make sense? The idea is this. It's better to have it now than the potential of having more if I've got to wait or if I've got to work to get it. That's the idea. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. It's been around for a long time. And so I believe that this idea, this human characteristic of a lack of patience, of not wanting to wait, is not something that's just new with us. Now, maybe we've made it more uh, uh, prevalent, the, the ability to not wait on anything, uh, but it's not a new human sentiment. We've, we've always been like this. A sparrow in the hand is worth a thousand sparrows flying. So if it's not new... We didn't invent it. It's not only technology's fault. In fact, technology is just a way to live into this desire that we have. The question then is, is this good for us? And what we're going to see is that tonight, the Apostle John, I think, actually touches on this idea. He actually gives us uh, some insight. And in fact, Jesus talked about this very thing, I I think, quite often. Uh, Let me just sort of summarize it for you and then we'll we'll break it down. We love the world and the things of the world because of what? Their immediacy and their predictability. We find it difficult to love God because uh, the things of God or the things of heaven, uh, they, they require great patience and often are shrouded and unpredictable. We love the world because it's predictable and it's immediate. The things of God aren't quite that way. So what would Jesus say about the old proverb, which was actually around in his day, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Here's what I think he'd do. I think he'd say, split the aces and double down. That's what I think he'd say. So let's uh, see why I think that. Some of you get that. Okay, so 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verse uh, 15. Okay, time for the glasses. Turn there if, if you're not there already. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Here's what it says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away. Along with its desires... But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we uh, come before you today. We just say, open our eyes. Help us to see the truth uh, that's found in your scriptures. We thank you that you are not silent and that you've spoken spoken to us, that you've given us uh, the cognitive ability of language and that you've communicated to us and that uh, we have reasoning brains and we can can read what you've left and we can try to understand what exactly you're telling us and it's helpful to go back and look at the historical context and so we thank you that we live in an age where we have access to all this information that we can understand what you're trying to say. So I pray tonight that you would um, open our eyes, that you would fill our hearts uh, and that anything that is from you would stick with us, that we might go from this place and live our lives in a different way. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so that's our hope. Let's see what, what the heck John means here when he says this. Let's get at it. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, this is an imperative. This isn't a nice suggestion. This is an imperative, which means it's a command. He's saying, do not love the world or the things of the world. Now, here's what's interesting. You might remember the most popular uh, verse, probably in all, uh, in all of Christianity. It goes something like this. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But wait, you're telling me uh, that God's allowed to love the world, but I'm not. Okay, we've got to wrestle with this. To love or not to love, that's the question. Which is nobler? Here's what we've got to understand. For God so loved the world. He's not saying, for God so loved the world, so you love the world. I think you could put these parallel. You could say, for God so loved the world, but you're not to love the world. That's the first point. God is the one who loves the world. Second point is this. God doesn't love the world as it is. He's not in love with the world. He loved the world so much that he sent his son. That's, that's uh, the nuance of John 3.16. It's God's love for the world and how he loved the world is by sending his son. He's not saying, I love the world as it is. What he's actually saying is the world's broken and I'm going to fix it. That's my love in sending the son. Does that make sense? So God showed his love for the world by sending his son, not that God is in love with the world and loves the way it is. In fact, he would never have sent his son if the world was lovable as it was. So um, here's what we've got to remember. Loving something doesn't mean accepting it. God doesn't accept the way the world is. He loves it and therefore sends his son to change it or fix it. And he's changing it. He's intending to remake it back to its original design and actually better than its original design um, to a place where there's people living in the realm of life and light. We've seen that in 1 John. He's saying God is life and God is light. We've seen that. And so he's remaking it so it's a place filled with light, filled with life, but it took the act of love which is sending his son. So that's, that's the first point. The other point is that this, word, this uh, word that we have, world, do not love the world, God loved the world, actually has several meanings. Uh, it could just mean the universe. It could just mean life uh, on earth generally. But usually it means this. C.H. Uh, Dodd says this. The life, uh, this is what the world means, a life of human society as organized under the power of evil. B.F. Westcott says it this way. The order of infinite be- or sorry, the order of finite being regarded as apart from God. So in both of those definitions, uh, the idea and the way that John is using the word world here is more in the sense of the ways of the world. Okay? So when he says, do not love the world or the things of the world, you could say it this way. Do not love the ways of the world and the ways of the world that produce the things of the world. So there's this idea of do not love the order of things or the way of things. Why? Because this world as it is is under the organized power of evil and it's apart from God. And so we should not love that. Okay. So God loves the people of the world. That's why he sent his son. But not the ways of the world. Because they're not his ways. So there's to love or not to love. There's both. We love the people of the world, but not the ways of the world. And so John here is particularly talking about the ways of the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is not in him. You say, Dave, I don't know if the world is actually, um, is actually all that bad. So why do you want me to stay away from the world and not love the ways of the world? Um, I was watching a doc. <laughs> my wife works nights, so sometimes I watch interesting documentaries. I was watching a documentary about C.S. Lewis. It was terribly done, in fact. Uh, if documentaries made like 20 years ago, it's amazing how far we've come. Uh, very poorly done. The editing was not good. But uh, they, scholars were talking about C.S. Lewis and what made him so great. He's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, along with uh, many other books. Uh, and they were talking about him and his good buddy named J.R.R. Tolkien, who is the author of The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. You may have heard of these. And these guys were a part of a group, a club called the Inklings, and they used to get together and go to these pubs outside of Oxford. 
and just talk about uh, their work and they'd help each other. Now what's interesting is that both of these gentlemen uh, created these fictional worlds, right? In the Chronicles of Narnia, um, in the Chronicles of Narnia we have, uh, of course, Narnia, this imaginary world that uh, when you walk through uh, the wardrobe, you enter into Narnia. Of course, in Lord of the Rings, you have Middle Earth, this imaginary world. And what was interesting is, and I never really thought about this, I mean, I guess it, it, it made complete sense to me, but uh, both of these guys were Christians, and they wanted to help uh, normal folk like us figure out what? That the world was broken. That there was evil in the world. That's one of the reasons that they wrote their books and they created these imaginary worlds. And the reason they created the imaginary worlds is because sometimes when we're in our own world, it's very hard to see that it's broken, to see that it's evil. And we start saying things like, well, you know, I don't think that's that bad, or the ways of the world over here, they're, they're not that bad. But as soon as you transport yourself into the world of Middle Earth or Narnia, it starts to become very obvious. Yeah, this isn't the way it should be. Obviously, the, uh, the, the white, what's her name? The white witch, she's terrible. Or Sauron, he's the worst, right? Did I say that right? Why is everyone laughing? He is the worst. Uh, so, p- part of the reason they said I, we need to create completely new worlds is because people have a hard time seeing how broken this one is. So if we just transport them into a world that's very similar in some ways, but different in others, it'll be very obvious to see that things are broken. And then what? We can all agree that something needs to happen. Something needs to happen. Something needs to be fixed. We need a savior to fix it, right? Everyone can agree. So is the world really so bad? I think it is. Now, before we go on, let me just say this. I'm going to read you a quote from a guy named John Stott. What should be our stance towards the world? Do not love the world or love the world. Is there something in between? John Stott puts it well, so I'll just read his words. He says this. Christians know themselves to have been chosen out of the world in such a way that they no longer belong to it. They are still in this world, yet distinct from it. So that we are... um, We and the world are set over against each other. For this reason, John writes, Marvel not, my brothers, and if the world hates you. Hatred is characteristic of the world as love is of the Christian. The world is, uh, not only hates us, but will not listen to us. It listens to the false prophets. And I'll add my own note here, because they tell them the world's not so bad. But we are of God and not of the world. Though the world hates the Christian, the Christian must not, must not hate the world. Nevertheless, he must love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. He is to be neither conformed to the world nor contaminated by the world, but in the world. What then is to be the Christian's attitude to the world? He is not to escape out of it, he is to remain in it, He is to be unworldly without becoming otherworldly, living in it without being of it. This is just an important, um, it's not the main point of our time tonight, but it's important to understand that. When you hear, do not love the world, it doesn't mean that you escape the world and you separate yourself completely from the world. It's just that you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're not otherworldly, but you're unworldly. That's an important distinction to make, and we need to help each other wrestle with what that looks like played out. What does that look like played out? So, if the world is so evil, sorry, if the world's bad, if the world's bad, And the ways of the world are not the ways of God. What do the ways of the world look like? What do the ways of the world look like? Okay, we're back here. 1 John. Verse 16 says this. He's describing now the ways of the world that we we should not love. For all that is in the world, 
Here he goes. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Let's look at each of these. The desires of the flesh. We've got to understand these because he's, he's generally speaking, characteristically, what, is, what are the ways of the world and what do they look like? Desires of the flesh. You could say the cravings of human striving. This is the temptation that is from within. Through the flesh of our uh, natural urges and inclinations, uh, our natural urges, they try to convince us to obey what is natural. That's the temptation from within. Our urges, our inclinations, obey what is natural. It's just natural. This is the flesh, the desires of the flesh. Flesh is untouched by God's spirit. That's the sense of the word flesh that he's using. It's not just that material is bad. It's not like our material bodies are bad. But the flesh is that part of us that is untouched by God's spirit. Desire of the eyes. This is the lust of seeing. The lust of seeing. This is temptation from without. This is temptation from without. So through the eyes, we are assaulted by, uh, by all of our senses, not just seeing, but all of our senses, as the things outside of us draw us and dominate our attention and thus our devotion. Eyes. This is seeing apart from God's insight. That's what John's getting at, desire of the eyes, seeing apart from God's insight. Now, pride of life is probably the most difficult of these terms to kind of understand what he's saying. Here's what he's saying, though. Pride, self-reliance on life. And to understand life, it's not just uh, life. The Greek word that's used here um, is more the things of life or the building blocks of life. So probably what he's trying to say is reliance on our possessions or the things of our life. So this is, I think, the main temptation of the enemy. The main temptation of the enemy. And here's how it works. He wants us to focus on what other people say about us. Okay? This is the pride of life. So what people say about us or the things that we have this is the temptation. And so through the shouts of our peers, our ears are peppered with recognition. We love to be seen and to be cheered for all that we have accomplished. We love to impress others, don't we? And what do we love to impress them with? Our importance. We love people to say that we're important. That's the pride of life. So this idea of pride or hubris, this is the pretentious arrogance well, it can be either pretentious arrogance or subtle elitism that comes from one's view of wealth, rank, stature in society. And really the problem with it is, is it's an overconfidence in ourselves that makes us lose any notion of our dependence on God. That's the pride of life. So we've got these three things that he says classifies the ways of the world and the temptations of the world. Um, and one of the commentaries I read says these are two lusts and one vault, meaning Two unholy desires for the things not yet had, and one unholy pride in the things we already have. And there's lots of things that fall under those categories. But John says that's the ways of the world. And I think in, in, in those ways, there's something, one of two heirs, and then I'll get to the second heir, heirs uh, th that makes loving the world so wrong and so dangerous. And they both have to do with the idea of time. So the first error is this. Instant gratification is not the same as divine sanctification, or sorry, divine satisfaction. So instant gratification is not divine satisfaction. So uh, what's interesting is these three, um, these, these three categories that John uh, talks about aren't exactly equivalent, but similar to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So, uh, in Jesus, right when he's about to start his ministry, he gets baptized by John the Baptist, and after he does, um, God draws him out into the wilderness for a testing of sorts. And so he draws him out into the wilderness. This is in Luke 4, if you want to go back and read it. It's also in the Gospel of Matthew. He draws him out. And uh, God allows him to be tempted by the devil. 
Uh, and the devil uh, tempts him really for 40 days, but the story gives us these three uh, temptations that happen near the end. Uh, the first is the temptation to turn stone into bread. Well, why? Because he'd been in the desert for 40 days and he'd been fasting. He hadn't eaten. And uh, you can only last about 40 days without eating before your body shuts down. Is that true? Yeah, I'm looking at my doctor friend in the back. That's true. He said it, it's true. UW Medicine, man, it's the best. Okay. So, I mean, just think about it. 40 days in the desert, he hasn't eaten. So what, what's happening? Think about it. The urges, the inclinations, the natural desire to eat food, right? And that's the temptation. The devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answers, it's, uh, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. That's the first temptation. The temptation from within. The desires of the flesh. So then the devil takes him up to a high place and he showed it to him. Um, probably the edge of the temple and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said to him, uh, hey, I can make this yours. I can give you all authority and splendor uh, and it can be given to you and I can do it right now. You don't have to wait, Jesus. You don't have to go through anything that the Father has planned for you. I'll give it to you right now. If you worship me instead of him, do it right now and I'll give it to you right now. All these kingdoms. Now here's what's interesting. God had already promised this to Jesus. This was a part of his promise that one day he would be king over all of this. And the, dev and the devil knows it, so he says, you know what, let's just take out the middleman, take out all that pain and suffering, I'll give it to you right now. Well, that's the temptation of the eyes. As Jesus looks out and he says, These, this is my land, these are my people. And the eyes say, that's not even that bad of a thing to want. So the eyes want it. What does Jesus say? Isn't it written? I don't know why I said it that way. Isn't it written? Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The eyes say, yeah, that's mine. Why don't I take it right now? But he says, no, I'll wait because I worship the Lord and serve him only. And the third temptation is this. The devil led him... Um, out and uh, to another high place and he said uh, if you're the son of God throw yourself down off of uh, the temple uh, probably into this valley so it's probably like a 300 foot drop he said throw yourself down and uh, the, the reason he was saying this is he says because you can command your angels to come and guard you and so here's the kicker when you don't die from jumping <laughs> off of this you know what's going to happen? The people are going to know who you are. And you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for the cross or the resurrection or the thousands of years that uh, people will wonder who you really are. We'll just go prove it right now when your angels come and they rescue you. We don't have to wait for that. And you know what Jesus says? He says, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see that temptation? The temptation is for everybody to know who he is. You don't have to be mocked or scoffed. We'll prove it right now that you truly are the son of God. And the devil knew that he was. But he said, no, that's not the way the father wants it to be done. I'll wait. I'll go through the heartache. I'll long suffer. You see, all three temptations are shortcuts to the promises of God. That's what's so hard about temptation. It's not only for things that for sure you're not supposed to have. It's usually for the things that you know God wants you to have, but it's on his term and not your own. It's on his terms and not the enemy's terms. And so we want shortcuts. We want it right now. We want the instant gratification. We don't want to wait. We said, oh, I think God would want us to have this, so I'll just take it. No. He says, wait. Be patient. So the world and the enemy, the ways of the world, the ways of the enemy, tempts Jesus to take shortcuts to God's promises, and he tempts us to take shortcuts to God's promises. Now, I was listening to this great song. I probably don't have time for this, but just play it real quick. Ben, get on that. There's this song, and I heard it, uh, just a sec, I heard it over and over again as a young man, because my dad loves music. And the thing is, I'm realizing as I'm getting older, I'm becoming him, and I was thinking about this idea of love, 
This is the song that popped into my head. Most of you might not have heard it unless your parents were playing it for you. But just play that song real quick, and then we'll t I'll tell you why this popped into my head. Turn that up. Come on. It's a guy named Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and sometimes Young. And you tell you, and you don't remember who you're talking to. Just listen to the little word. Concentration, slip away. Okay, hit it, brother. Now, as a kid, I never even thought about what these words meant. It's such a fun melody, isn't it? You're just like, man, this must be a song about... Uh, with a positive message. And it popped into my head when I was just thinking about love. What is love? This song popped into my head. Love the one you're with. And then I started to read the lyrics. And then I started to realize this is the worst song I've ever read <laughs> or ever heard. It's not a good message at all. See, I'd always thought it was like, uh, you know, you just got to love everybody around you. Actually, if you read it, it says this. Uh, because your baby is so far away... Um, and you can't be with your honey, love the one you're with. And then it goes on to say, hey, there's a girl right next to you, and she's just waiting for something to do. This is in the song. <laughs> and then it's like this weird, there's a rose and a fisted glove, which I think is saying, you know, opposites attract or something like that, and there's an eagle that flies with the dove. And if you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. This is exactly the way of the world. It's, he's saying this, man, your girl's across the country, you know, it, you know, you don't want to wait for her to come back into town. You know, there's a girl right next to you. She's just waiting for something to do. Love her. See how terrible? <laughs> That's the way of the world. And you put it to a jingle like, man, and you throw a famous name and then you start teaching this to your little son and you're like, this is a great song, son. Let's sing it out loud. If you can't be, and I'm, I'm like, yeah, Dad, come on. <laughs> I love you, Dad. He's like, that ain't the song, son. You know, like, uh, this is not a good song. Don't teach your kids this song. Because it's the way of the world. It's saying instant gratification. A bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. A bird in the hand is better than waiting for your honey to come back into town. Now, let me be honest with you. If you live according to the ways of the world, if you live according to the ways of the world, you actually might have a pretty good life. You might have a good life. Because the ways of the world are the ways of the world, and it's the way we structure everything. And so you, if you focus on just taking what's there, what's immediate, you know what? It's not... I'm not saying your life's going to be terrible. But here's the deal. There's a difference between the real and the really real. There's a difference. God doesn't offer us imitations. The world offers imitations. My buddy Isaac just recently purchased a pair of New Balance shoes on the internet. And then they got here, and we saw him the other day, and he was wearing them, like, those are cool shoes. Are those New Balance? And then we looked at it, and we're like, why is the N upside down? <laughs> and we're like, well, I got these from China, <laughs> or something like that. We're like, they're imitation. They're like 20 bucks. I'm like, yeah, that's real in one way. I mean, it's a shoe, but that shoe's going to fall apart in, like, two months, man. They're very comfy. Yeah. <laughs> That's an imitation, and it's, it's close to the real, but it's not the really real. You know, you can go to a movie about love, and you can legitimately cry. What's the name of that movie we went to? About the stars or something? Oh, The Faults of Our Stars. You remember that movie? It was actually a pretty good movie. But, I mean, I was tearing up because there was, there was something real that was being portrayed on the screen... But here's the deal. It's an imitation of the real thing. 
It's actors playing a role. It's not the really real. There's a difference between the real thing and imitation. And so you might watch the movie, you might cry, you might feel real feelings of love or joy. They let me remind you of something, but then what always happens? The movie ends. And if you went to the movie by yourself, you're still by yourself. The movie doesn't change your situation. It's an imitation of the real. It's real in some ways. And so I say, you could play by the ways of the world, but it's not the same, okay? It's not the really real. So the core temptation or the core of temptation, I think, is this. Temptation plays on our impatience. God will fulfill our promises, but on his timeline, in his way, and in the full. No imitations. But we hate to wait. We hate to wait. And so we settle for cheap replicas of the real thing. I'll tell you what, your life here might look pretty good. People might say, oh, you got a good life. But the thing is, you're missing out on the real thing. Error two also has to do with time. Pick it up. Verse 17. He says this, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away. See the, uh, see the theme of time here? Passing away. John's saying this, The world and its ways are doomed, but there is a new age. Look, look back just a couple verses to verse 8 of the same chapter. Verse 8 says what? The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. And that true light is Jesus Christ. So the old world and the ways of it are doomed. They're passing away. But there's a new age dawning, the light shining, Jesus Christ. So it's not only that they're imitations. And so even though you might get them quickly, they're not the real thing. The other thing is that what you do get is passing away. What you do get is passing away. And here's the problem. What you love is what you unite to. I mean, you can uh, learn this the hard way, but it's true. The thing that you love ultimately and always will be the thing that you end up with in the end. The thing that you love, you unite yourself with. Now, there's a lot of young folks in this room. Don't kid yourself about love. If you think you can just turn it on and off, that you can just love the world for a bit, and then when I'm older, I'll take this stuff seriously, or I'll have serious conversations, or I'll figure out who this God really is. I'll just love the world for a while, maybe just in my 20s, I'll love the world. And then I'll just flip that switch, I'll stop loving the world, and I'll start loving God again. That does not work. Because what you love, you grow close to, you begin to bond yourself with, and you can't just flip the switch. So you need to start right now, Asking the question, who do I want to love? Who do I really love? Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart. If I could say one thing to all of us in the room, guard your heart, because what you love is what you unite to, and you will ultimately end up where they or it ends up. So if you love it, you will end up where it goes. And here's exactly, and Jesus said this on the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up your treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you love is what you unite to and you'll end up in the same place it is. And if it's passing away, the thing that you love, you too will pass away with it. And this begs the question then, is it true that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush? Is that true? Whose wisdom is that? It's been around for a long time. Whose wisdom is it? Is it the wisdom of the world or is it the wisdom of the Father in heaven? Take all that I can and what's in front of me or wait for something more, potentially better. How would John answer this? He would say, turn to my fifth chapter of my letter and I'll tell you. That's what John would say. He said, I already wrote it down. Just read it. Four, or sorry, 
chapter 5. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes, what? The world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What's the victory? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What is he saying here? Here's what he's saying. You can't love the world, but it's all around me. You must overcome the world. How do you overcome the world? You must be born of God which makes you a child of God, which makes you uniquely capable to obey the Father. And by obeying the Father and doing His will, you will have life eternal. And how do you do the will of the Father when it seems so hard? By faith. That is your victory. Faith. Now, Pastor Dave, how does this follow that faith overcomes the world? How does it follow that faith overcomes the world? We're turning again. <laughs> Second Corinthians, you don't have to turn if you don't want, because I gotta go, I gotta go there quick. Second Corinthians chapter four. If you uh, don't have a Bible, take the Bible that you got on the pew, take it home so that you can underline this passage. This is a passage you need to know and you need to take to heart. Here's what it says. If you're not there yet, I'll just read it. Listen very closely. Chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Faith, the essence of faith, is trusting and hoping in the things unseen, the eternal, more than the things seen or transient. Romans 8.24 says this, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it. Look at that word. Patiently. We wait for it patiently. See what's going on? The way of the world is this. I can see it, I can touch it, I can grab it now, and I'll take it now. The way of God says this. You can't see it. It's unseen. And you, you can't always have it right now. But if you wait patiently, if you long suffer, there is something so much greater that's, that's there for you. And when you believe that, that's faith. So what fuels our patient long-suffering? It's our faith. And what takes no faith at all? Instant gratification. The scene. I don't have to have any faith to take that thing that's right there. I just take it. Instantly, I've got it. But now, what does John say we need to root our faith in? It's not just a wild, blind faith for faith's sake. He says we must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Why is this so important? Because Jesus Christ is He who has overcome the world. The one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God recognizes, recognizes that God's promises are true, that He keeps His promises, that God is real, that resurrection is real. And to believe the resurrection... so. Are you following? If, Jesus, if you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then you believe that He actually rose from the dead. And if you believe that He actually rose from the dead, then that's tangible proof. 
See, it's not blind faith. It's tangible proof that God keeps his promises and that his promises always lead to a new, better, fuller kind of life than anything that we could have imagined. And that gives us hope, and our hope is our salvation. See, that's why you root your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, because he has proven that God is real, that God is powerful, and that God keeps his promises, and that what he wants for us is life because of the resurrection. So faith isn't blind, but it's the faith that overcomes the world as we choose to root ourselves in faith and not in instant gratification. Dang it. Uh, a very good friend of mine's sister died uh, last week. She had been struggling with an autoimmune disease. She had got one liver transplant when she was 17 and lived for another 13 years. And uh, I didn't even realize that she, that her liver had failed her again and that she was deteriorating. And I didn't even realize till a week later that she had passed away. But then I saw a Facebook post and I clicked the link and I read her blog and I was blown away because I didn't even know that she was a believer. And it turns out that she was and I was blown away by her blog. And the name of her, or, or what she titled her blog was She Chooses Joy. And she wrote about how she chooses joy, even in the face of a lifelong struggle with an autoimmune disease, with a liver transplant, with all the things that had happened. And it brought me to tears because I said, this is exactly, this is exactly what we need to be like. Her name is Emily. So we need to be like Emily. See, I think lots of times... Uh, Christians are viewed or we even view ourselves as those people who need something. We need a crutch and so we choose religion. We need a crutch so we choose Christianity. We need a crutch so we choose Jesus. But that's not it at all. You see, people like Emily that have experienced this, they realize what? They realize that the instant gratification that the world gives is passing away. It's passing away. They realize it. They're experiencing it. Her body is passing away. It's failing her. And you know what? Everybody comes to this realization at some point, but it's the sages like Emily who get it a lot earlier. And she got it. And so we need to look to Emily and see how she chooses to live her life. And she chooses joy. And how can she choose joy in the face of this as it's wasting away? It's because she hasn't loved the world. She hasn't loved the things of the world. She's loved the Father. And she's chosen the Father. And she knows that though she's wasting away, she's got life eternal and she'll abide with him forever. She knows it. It's her faith that overcomes her circumstance. She chooses joy. I... I I don't. I never got to spend time with Emily, but you know what? As I was reading her blog, this overwhelm. I'm going to spend time with Emily, and so I've got no problem talking about her, because I want many of you to know Emily as well. Because she has overcome. Her faith has overcome, and so here's. I know I'm. I'm over again. Always. I'm over. Always. I'm always over. But here's the question. Whom will you choose? That's ultimately what John is asking in this very small passage. Whom will you choose? Will you choose the world that gives you the instant gratification, but that's wasting away? Or will you choose the Father who says, I've got some promises I want to give to you, but you might have to wait for them. You might have to be patient, but I tell you, it's really real. It's the most real thing that you could ever have. And I've got it for you. But you just need to be patient. The world is a rival to the human heart. And I think God allows us to live in this world and he allows the world to try and woo us because he wants us to make a choice. Like Emily made a choice. He wants us to make a choice. And he wants us to choose the world and the ways of the world and the ruler of this world. He wants us to weigh it against him and what he offers and what he has to give. He wants us to choose. So the most pressing question that we have is whom will I love today? 
But the most important question we have is what will happen to me when either I pass away or the world passes away? And they might seem like different questions, but they're the exact same question. Who you love today will be who you're united to when you pass away or the world passes away and the things of the world pass away. It's the same question. The Beatles say, all you need is love. Jesus says, no, the object of your love is the most important. You will love something, but who will you love? Choose today who you'll love. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And here's the deal, friends. Here's the deal. That is the best choice you could make. Patient, long-suffering. And we know that because that's the gospel. That God didn't give up on us. That he decided to love the world so much that he gave his only son to come and suffer on our behalf and die on our behalf. Because he didn't come to win at the, at, at the games of the world, he came to change the game. He change, came to change the game. And so, just like he did in the wilderness 40 days, he chose patience, and he chose suffering over instant gratification. When the cross was in front of him, he chose patience and suffering over getting himself out of the bind. And again and again, he chose for our good, patience and suffering over instant gratification, not because it wasn't his to take, but because he loved us so much. That's the gospel. And so we have the question, do we want to be gospel people or do we want to be world people? So I'm going to finish with this. 2 Peter 3.8. This is another great verse if you just want to write it down and, and uh, underline it. This explains the way God does things. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and as a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Guys, this is the way of the gospel. Patience, patience, patience. Why? Because he wishes none would perish. So I think we need to be very, very glad that our God does not believe that it's true. That one in the hand is worth two in the bush but that he waits patiently for every one of us to choose him that we might have life eternal, life in Christ, life with the Father. Let's pray.